This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Society of the Snow is a film based on a true story. The 1972 plane crash that left passengers and a Ugandan rug- uh, sorry, Uruguayan rugby t- team stranded in the Andes Mountain. You also may recall that it's been used before to make a movie, the 1993 movie, Alive with Ethan Hawke. Here's a clip from Society of the Snow. A plane leaves a hangar. In an airport, a man meets his teammates. The team is photographed outside the Carrasco airport. The plane takes off, and the team fools around in the cabin. Turbulence shakes the plane. Please fasten your seatbelts. Passengers are flung about. Based on the remarkable true story, people awaken. From J.A. Bayona, the plane lies in a mountain snowfield. Survivors survey the scene. Any idea where we are? Director of The Impossible and The Orphanage. Look at me. Someone's broken leg is set. Spain's official submission for the Academy Awards. You can't see the plane. They could fly over and they still wouldn't see us. What happens when the world deserts you? A man cries, help. Survivors set up a radio. When you have no clothes and you're freezing, a man climbing in a snowstorm says, we won't make it to the top. When you have no food and you're dying. Oh, gosh. Uh, Intensity. Intensity through and through. Let's bring in Amy Amanti for a film review on this one. Hey, good morning, Amy. Morning, Dave. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Amy, you're about to get on a plane. Why on earth? Why on earth would you watch a movie about a plane crash? Um, because I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a masochist, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm actually a sucker for these, uh, true story kind of movies. And I saw the 1993, uh, movie alive yeah, when same. I was 11. Um, and so that one had a really big impact on me and I kind of just wanted to see how this one compared. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's been 20 years since they made it the last time, right? So, so there, yeah. there's some there's some reason to retell the story 20 years later, especially yeah. because it is an interesting story. So, what did you find interesting about the creation of this film? You know what I I thought was interesting because I um you know was watching the two and I was comparing the two and then I rewatched Alive just to you know watch the two of them you know closer together in time just so that my memory was fresh about these two films and then was doing a little bit of research because as as you probably can guess there are many books that are written about this same story um but the book that was written that told a lot uh, about the okay the book that was written that was that alive was based on and the book that was written that society of the snow was based on was written by two different authors at two different times mm. even though it's the same story and the book that society of the snow was based on was ba- uh, was told by a uruguayan uh, au- uh, author journalist who was actually friends with many of the folks that were on this plane since childhood oh wow so there was a personal connection right and i thought well that's a little bit more compelling for me like the story feels a little bit more authentic, also told from a Uruguayan perspective as opposed to a UK author. 
Um, so there felt it felt a little bit more personal to me. And uh, in, in watching this particular story, I mean, uh, there is no Hollywood buzz here. There's no Hollywood actors. There's no Hollywood spin. There's no there's none of that. These there's there's a real authenticity here, even being spoken in uh, original languages or spoken in Spanish, um, although there was uh, access provided and we'll talk about, well, you know, it was, it was dubbed in English and had English um, uh, audio description, but even the English dubs uh, were really, really well done mm. um, in a way that I could feel. Um, I wasn't feeling like it was a static read, right? That's that they just got an actor to read three, you know, typically we get the audio describer reading the, the subtitles. That's not what was done here. It was, it was dubs. So, and for me, I'm not seeing the characters faces. So, so I'm not getting that whole, oh, the, the yeah. dialogue the match with the face, <laughs> yeah. right? So it felt really authentic to me to listen to it. And I kind of like that when it's a foreign language film and I feel like I can get into it, even though it's dubbed in English. Um, so a lot of those things really struck some some chords for me in um, in watching this particular film. I only I only regret that um, in trying to watch some of the clips of the interviews with the writer, um, that they were all in Spanish and I couldn't access those in yeah. English because I was trying to listen to the intent and pick out some of the Spanish words. And then I was trying to, you know, uh, press pause on the subtitles and try to figure out if I could read some of those subtitles and get some of those Spanish words. But you could feel the intent of the language. And I was just like, oh, I wish I could access what that meant because I could just feel the heart in some of those interviews. So I digress, Dave, but some of these no, things really stood out to me in this in this film. I, I think the dubbing side is something that you and I have talked about before yeah. when you want to consume foreign films as someone who is legally blind or yeah. blind or totally blind. It is a barrier, and for years, dubbing was absolutely awful, R regardless of re regardless of like the, the the lack of sync between the mouth on screen and the words yeah. that were coming out. Is that the dubbing was actually bad? It was yeah. it was it was objectively a bad experience to watch a movie through dubbing, and it really feels like in the last five or six years. People are starting, studios and directors and producers are starting to realize that dubbing is a viable option and a viable way for people to consume these movies. They yeah. don't want to read subtitles for three straight hours. They want to listen to good dubbing. And Amy, it makes such a difference and opens up the world of content for people like you and me to consume. Well, especially when it's an Oscar contender, and we know that that's you know that's a, that's a North American market, right? Um, so you know that that uh, you know you, you basically know that the United States wants to view this film essentially. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense for you to have that. And, and, and in fact, I, like Dave, I watched this with the dubbing, and then I watched it in Spanish um, because I wanted to just feel what that felt like to watch yeah. it in Spanish yeah. after I yeah. knew what it was all about with the dubbing. Uh, my mother watched it with the dubbing and she's a sighted person and she said you know actually it wasn't too bad um uh in terms of how they do their best to try and, and match up the the sentence structure 
Um, they, they, and they hire professional actors. Yes. So you're yes. getting that in, you're getting the intent in the voice. You're, you're getting, you know, that the prep work that an actor does when they put into a character, you're not getting somebody who's just trying to spit out the words. Right. And so all of that, as you say, all of that prep work is done. It kind of reminds me of the arc of audio description. Um, you know, I hate to, I, I hate to, we've had these discussions about losing audio description to AI. Imagine if we had to dub with AI, oh, right? Like nobody would want that. So two steps um, you're backwards. Right. <laughs> Right, we're putting the quality into that work because it's an art form all on its own, and it opens up the content. So I think it's 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 really yeah, it's really worth listening to things that if you want access to foreign language films, that it's it's worth the listen. Yeah, that's one of the things I felt watching All Quiet on the Western Front uh, ahead of last year's Oscar season as well. The dubbing was just phenomenal. Yes, someone could have watched that movie with just subtitles, and that's cool, but. Yeah, the dubbing was just really, really phenomenal. It never took me out. It never took me out of the movie for a single second, which is yeah. a real testament. Uh, Amy, uh, I, I know it's a bit strange because you've consumed this film in so many different ways now, but what did you think of the performances? So here's a little thing I learned about the performances before, um, well, after I, I consumed the movie, that all of the cast in this are um, all from Uruguay, and they are all... Um, newcomers to the screen and that changes your perspective on what you think of acting and we've talked about this before dave and sometimes the value of a newcomer is is that you not you're not um you're not uh having to deconstruct the bad habits of an actor you know the face the bad habits yeah, of an yeah. actor on their faces and the overacting thing that some actors tend to do um this i thought was one of the most beautiful pieces of acting that I have seen in a long time because the connection was there. And like, I'm, I'm listening to this in Spanish because the dubbing doesn't help you with the acting, right? Mm -hmm. But listening to it in Spanish and trying to connect these moments, um, you hear fear in the voice, you hear sensitivity in the voice, you hear um, moments of levity in the voice, right? Because even though these folks are terrified of being stuck on a mountain 72 days these people were stuck on a mountain um and that the trials and tribulations there are moments of levity there are moments of joy there are moments of connectivity right there are moments of camaraderie whatever you call it um, and you hear that in the storytelling of of these folks being in this place and in this time so um i actually think that this one is a good contender for for the oscars wow. i hope it wins wow yeah. amy gotta be a uh, quick on yeah. this one but the audio description itself there's a lot of natural sweeping beauty shots here in the yep. andes uh yep. how did the describer handle both the action, the plane crash, and yep. natural beauty and cannibalism, maybe. And cannibalism, yeah. I think that there was a really great balance, especially when it comes to the natural beauty. And here's another thing that I learned about the natural beauty. <gasps> Hold your breath on this one. They went back to the actual crash site to film this movie. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. Okay. So there you go. Uh, not very rarely does that happen. Um, so they were at the actual crash site to film this movie. But the audio description does really, really beautiful jobs in talking about the landscape of this film, setting up the world that we are in, um, and balancing that between, um, uh, like you said, the cannibalism. They've done that really tastefully. Ah, that, no oh, pun intended. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Um, but, yeah, you know, there, there's a sensitivity that needs to be balanced there, right? Uh, it's not a, a Simpsons episode where you pass you another hunk of coal 
co-pilot, right? Um, so there you go. Or was that Family Guy? No, no, that, that's that's the Simpsons. Yeah, when Marge yeah. was afraid of flying. Yeah, no, no, you got you got your <laughs> reference. You got your 30-year-old reference uh, correct on that one, Amy. Uh, Amy, uh, just one last question on the way out here. Yeah. I, think you, I think you tipped your hand a little bit, but I get yeah. the impression you recommend Society of the Snow. I would watch it. I would watch it um, even just for, you know, we say this a lot on the... Uh, the, the, the movies that are based on true stories, even just to be a part of this piece of history and learn what happened. Um, we all know that there's a little bit of artistic, uh, you know, a little bit of artistic oh, of uh, license course, of course. taken in these kinds of things. It is a storytelling. It is a, 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 a you know, it was, we take artistic liberties, um, but to understand uh, what had happened to these folks and how these folks survived, I think it's worth the watch, definitely worth the watch. And if you're an Oscar uh, watcher, watch it. Yeah, the next six to eight weeks is going to be a lot of uh, consuming things to play catch up on uh, in and around the Oscars. Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. I know uh, there's some transit strikes and some weather in Vancouver. Hope you're uh, staying safe. Thanks, Dave. That's Amy Amanti. You can find Society of the Snow streaming on Netflix. You do need to be mindful, though, that it is rated R. There is some uh, difficult stuff in here, so maybe not quite one for the kiddos. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report, but first, climate change misinformation is evolving on YouTube. Mike Dubusky takes a closer look in Tech Trends. From ABC News Tech Trends, a new report finds disinformation about climate change is undergoing a radical shift on YouTube. Away from what we call the old climate denial, that's the rejection that climate change is happening. That is man-made towards what we call the new climate denial, and that's attacking the solutions. Imran Ahmed is the chief executive of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. He says they found content on YouTube spreading false information about solar energy and saying that things like electric cars actually use more CO2 in their supply chain than gasoline cars. Well, that's not true over their lifetime. And he says it's especially concerning given YouTube's popularity. It's one of the biggest sites in the world for billions of people. YouTube says it doesn't let users make money off videos that deny human-made climate change. First of all, they should extend that to the new climate denial. But in our report, we did find ads appearing on old climate denial content too. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's go from technology to the world of entertainment with Laura Bain. Laura, a bunch of Madonna fans are ticked off and suing Madonna for starting a concert late. Yes, that's right. So uh, two fans so far, there may be more that jump on board, are suing over a show in New York that started two hours late. So it was meant to start at 8.30, but instead the show started at 10.30, not ending until after 1 a.m., which for me is definitely <laughs> past my <laughs> yeah. past my bedtime. Uh, so they're, shoo- they're suing the promoter and the venue for false advertising, negligent misrepresentation, and unfair and deceptive trade practices. So all three New York shows started two hours late. Concert goers weren't oh, notified at oh, all. Oh, that like I think that's a really good statement right there. Hit that one again because that's a really important yeah. factor. And we're going to get into the pattern here, but there were three New York shows. All three started two hours late, and concert goers didn't get any sort of heads up. They were just meant to kind of sit there, stand there, and wait. Buy twenty dollars beers. Exactly. 
So according to the lawsuit, this created issues for people with family and child care responsibilities and who had to get up for work the next morning. That's very relatable. And uh, it also mentions that there were more limited transportation options at oh, 1 a.m. Yeah. than oh, there would yeah. have been like two hours earlier. So uh, as I mentioned, this was this is a pattern. So Madonna has a long history of arriving and starting her concerts late. Uh, so she was also sued in 2019 over this same issue. And that same year, she made a statement on stage. I'm just going to quote it here because I think it's kind of wild. She said, there's something that you all need to understand. And that is that a queen is never late. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a Madonna being a little bit of a Madonna, Madonna being yeah. a little bit of a diva. Exactly. And now I also found a video of her on stage from around eight years ago, being so rude to her fans, yelling at them and calling them divas and like words that I can't say on mm -hmm, morning mm -hmm. television Please don't. for complaining about her lateness and saying like, don't come to my shows if you feel that way. So Dave, I want your thoughts on this. I, I certainly feel there's an accessibility angle here we could explore, but how important do you think it is that events start on time? I think I think it's really important that events start on time or at the very least there's some clarity about time frames right if you say that the the doors to the madonna concert are opening at 8 and the show is supposed to start at 8 30 but what happens is there's going to be an opener you know a first actor a second actor going to come on that's cool tell me that mention that objectively in my ticket in my schedule give me this information as a concert goer so i can choose and build my day as i please this seems habitual and that's where i think the misleading business practice really matters in this lawsuit because if you get to if you get somewhere and you think the show starts at 8:30 and now you're standing around for 2 hours you're going to go buy a hot dog you're going to go buy a couple of beers and that's just putting money into the promoter's hands that could have been spent either at home, pre-gaming, or, uh, or, or, or going to a restaurant or a bar around the arena or stadium. I just think that it's really disrespectful to expect your fans to sit around for you for a couple hours and then kind of not tell them that that's, that's the intent. I, I, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, whatever. That's life. Life happens. Uh, mm -hmm. But when you start getting into the two-hour zone, no, no, that's structural. That's deliberate. That's intentional, and it's a real jerk move. You know what? I, I completely agree, and I think that most people understand that stuff happens sometimes, and a concert might have to be delayed as a one-off, but this is a pattern, and we're not talking about a $20 ticket, because, you know, I saw some things online about, like, this is art, she's an artist, you can't whatever. No, this is, like, something that people are paying hundreds of dollars, in some cases more, to attend, so it's a big loss if you just say, you know what? My ride is waiting, my excessive bus is waiting, whatever. I've got to leave, you could be out hundreds of dollars apart from like having wasted your evening. And I can see lots of ways that this could impact someone with a disability. Like if you're thinking about the transportation, but also what if you live with chronic pain and suddenly you're unexpectedly having to sit in an uncomfortable oh, concert awful, venue seat for awful, two hours yeah. more than you expected, right? Let alone if you're paying like a personal care worker to be with you. So I don't know. Now, should they get like hundreds of thousands of no, dollars no, or no. something? No. 
but but they should get the cost of their ticket back and any additional expenses they had to occur. Like if someone had to take a a cab home to Jersey that night, they should probably yeah <laughs> probably get that back. Yeah, hundreds of thousands might be a little bit much, but you would hope that there's sort of a ruling that comes down that says you have to end this business practice, and that could be good for consumers of all stripes. Uh, it is lovely when something starts on time. I went to go see a show last summer that started on the minute on the button at Massey Hall, and I was in my seat fist pumping. I was like, yeah, nine <laughs> o'clock on the nose, you guys started. This is awesome. Uh, Laura, thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, thanks, Dave. You too. I increasingly am becoming an old man. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I yell at the clouds and I think about the way things used to be, and I want you artists to show up on time. Oh, boy, I got to work on that. Coming up after the break, a couple stories in the regional news update, including a BC transit strike affecting people this morning. And Brock Richardson reacts to what was a pretty awesome weekend in sports. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.